you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Psalm 148. Psalm 148. The goal this morning, hopefully, and it always feels like we fly when Gary's not here, so we've got so much time. I could fill up all 45 minutes. The goal this morning, hopefully, is to get through Psalm 148, 149, and maybe even 150. I'm excited to be able to bring this message this morning because, um, I don't know if you remember, but back in the summer uh, when we had started the Psalms in the daily Bible reading, um, I got to talk with you about Psalms 1 and 2, and now it's going to come full circle, the entire book of Psalms, which is, in a sense, a history of the nation of Israel. The book of Psalms was for a people who were exiled from their home, a people who were far away from the temple, a people who were cut off from the things they knew. The book of Psalms was a collection of praises, a a collection of laments, a collection of emotional and intimate sharings and prayers with God, of godly people. It's a collection for those who were far away from what they knew and could and and would need to hear a message of hope, would need to hear a reminding, reminding of what God had promised. And Psalm 1 and 2 is an introduction to that history, to that hope for the people. And Psalm 1 and 2, if you remember, it gives us the lens that we need to read the whole entire book of Psalms with. And that lens was about focusing on the promise of the coming Messiah, the promise of the coming one who God said would deal with Israel's most difficult problem. The people who surrounded Jesus throughout his ministry, they thought their most difficult problem was Rome or was political oppression or physical oppression they didn't necessarily realize or get right away that their biggest problem that Jesus came to deal with was the oppression of sin, the condemnation of sin, the fact that they could do nothing in and of themselves to earn God's favor, that they needed a perfect Messiah. And so yesterday was Christmas, and we celebrated all that. Maybe you didn't think about things in that sort of detail. Maybe you didn't consider all of those aspects, but when you celebrate the birth of Christ, you're celebrating the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise of God in time and space. So as I was preparing this morning, I was thinking about the, um, the shepherds, and we read that story last week, and, and you know that story well, when the angels come to the shepherds and they say, glory to God in the highest. And they say, there's good news. And the shepherds drop everything they're doing and they run to see this baby. Babies were born all the time. They're still born all the time. People don't run unless you're connected to the baby somehow. You, you, know, you don't run to see a baby you've never heard of before born. Maybe you do. But most people don't. So I think that everything that is in the Psalms and everything that Psalm 148 and 149 and Psalm 150 
have to say the culmination of the promise of God, all of that is wrapped up in those moments when the angels are saying to the shepherds, everything you've been waiting for, everything God has promised way back to Abraham, to David, to Adam and to Eve, everything God promised is finally coming true in the birth in the person, in the life, in the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's a lot going on in Psalm 148, Psalm 149, and Psalm 150. So what I want to do is just look at Psalm 148 a little bit. We read it. It's long, but it's so important. And then I want you to see that Psalm 149 and 150 is hopefully the natural response we should have to Christmas Day, to celebrating the birth of Jesus. So, let's look at these together and, uh, and, and see what's going on here. Psalm 148, as Scott said, is a praise to the Lord from creation. And this is really important. And I want you to notice the pattern that is going on here in Psalm 148. So, you can divide this psalm from verses 1 through 6. That's one section. And then verses 7 through 12 is another section, and then there is a final two verses, 13 and 14, and those final two verses give you the reason why you should praise the Lord. Just something interesting to note that Psalm 145 through Psalm uh, 150 all start and end the same way. They all start by saying praise the Lord, and they all end by saying praise the Lord, and it's a conclusion to the book. And so this week, or, or, or this past week, you would have been reading these psalms if you're following along in the daily Bible reading. So we're going to look at this. It says this in verse 1 of Psalm 48, praise the Lord. In the Hebrew, it would say hallelujah. Hallelujah, praise Yah, Yahweh, God the Lord. We think of it as that means we should praise God. And and that's true, but what this actually is is a call for people to understand their need to praise God. So when you see in Psalm 145 through 150, when you see this phrase praise the Lord at the beginning and praise the Lord again at the end in verse 14, what it's saying is take note everyone that you need to praise God. And so the question is, why do we need to praise God? Well, in Psalm 148, we're going to get the order of creation as a reason to praise God. And not just as a reason, but it's a call for all of creation. Every aspect of the created universe needs to praise the Lord. So you'll see in the first section here, verses 1 through, well, 1 through 4 initially, there's kind of this um, descending. I think, think of it like being on steps and being at the top of the steps. And we're going to start walking down the steps together and listing the things in creation that need to praise God. This section, this first section, is everything above my head needs to praise God. It says this, praise the Lord from the heavens. Heavens are high above me. They're up above me. They're where God dwells. Traditionally in the Bible, right? That's what the writers mean when they talk about the heavens. Praise him in the heights, the high mountains, 
the high hills, the highest trees. Praise him, everything that's above my head. Praise him, all his angels. Those are the, th- the heavenly beings, the heavenly creatures, the spiritual things that are up dwelling in the heavens with God. All of those things praise God. Praise him, all his hosts, with the shepherds, the story of the shepherds. An angel came and started speaking, and then what happened? The whole hosts of heaven opened up and joined that angel in praising God, right? So the, not just some angels, but all of the heavenly hosts, the spiritual beings in heaven, praise God. Praise him, sun and moon. These are things I can see. Praise him, sun and moon. Planets, stars, praise him, all you stars of light. And then it says, praise him, you heaven, heavens of heavens. So think of like the holy of holies was the holiest place, right? Within the tabernacle, within the temple. The holy of holies was the place where God dwelt. And right outside of where he dwelt, it was still holy. And where God was, was the most holy. And when it says, praise him, you heavens of heavens, I think... It's safe to say that he's talking about the things that are even above what the eye can see all the way up there in the sky. And we know that there is a galaxy around our solar system, and we know that there are galaxies beyond our galaxy, and that this universe that we find ourselves in, our little spot in it is tiny compared to the immensity of the universe God has created. So all you heavens of heavens, the things out there that we'd have to send a satellite to see and the things that might even be beyond our capability, all of those things, whatever is created above me, needs to praise God. And you waters above the heavens. The rain comes from above, so there's water up there, the atmosphere, the weather. Everything above praise God. Well, why? Verse 5 and 6 tell us why they need to praise God, that we call creation to praise the Lord. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Just consider the intricacy of our solar system, the intricacy of the sun, the intricacy of the moon, the intricacy of, you don't even have to go that far away from yourself, a mountain, the incredible detail and everything that has to work together for that to even exist. The Lord commanded those things just by a word. He didn't go into his garage and pull out his tools and sit at his workbench and mess with things until he got it right. He simply said, be, and it existed. I mean, even the most powerful person in this world doesn't have that much power to say, and something is. So all those things should praise the name of God because they were created by him and he has the ultimate control and power over those things. But also, he established them forever and ever. Verse 6, and he made a decree which shall not pass away. He put... The creation in the path, set it on the path that he desired, and it will never change unless he says so. 
it will never stop doing what it's supposed to do unless he says so. It's, the sun has always risen, and the sun will always rise as long as God wishes it to rise. I mean, that only makes sense if he has all the power to create it. Obviously, he would have the power to establish it. And so he makes those decrees. And so the created order, everything above my head can praise God, knowing that it has a purpose. And when it's doing what it's supposed to do, it's fulfilling that purpose. And that is bringing honor and glory to God. Now, I'm pointing all this out. It will tie to Christmas, I promise you. But I want you to kind of start to feel the weight of everything going on when the angels came to those shepherds and said, glory to God in the highest because today the promise has been fulfilled so creation can praise God knowing that redemption has come. So then he moves on and he deals with everything in creation from me down. From you down. So everything before was above me and now he's going to start talking about everything else in this world, from your head all the way down. He says this, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all the depths. We don't have time. I mean, we could probably spend several weeks trying to understand the implications of sea creatures to a Jewish audience in ancient Israel. The sea was a place of chaos. It could not be controlled. You were at its Mercy, it was something that was way more powerful than you. And so sea creatures lurking in the deep, I mean, that's, this, is, this is scary imagery that's what's being used, and the fact that these powerful things in the ocean, something that Israelites could not control, and something that oftentimes in Israelite poetry is used to symbolize chaos and fear, even those things need to praise God. And not just those things in the water that no one could control and that are fearful and chaotic, but the things in this world that we can't control that are fearful and chaotic, namely the weather. I mean, there's, we, we can't control the weather. They couldn't then, and, and we certainly can't now, and we can't really even predict it that well all the time. But it says this, fire and hail praise God, snow and clouds Praise God. Stormy winds, praise God. Do all of that. All those things, praise God, and that fulfills his word. When they do what they do, when fire burns and when hail falls, when snow comes, when clouds cover the sky, and even when stormy winds blow and destroy, that is fulfilling the word of God because he created those things to do that. So they need to praise God. And they do praise God when they do what they were created to do. In verse 9 it says this, Mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, those praise God. Beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl. Everything you can climb, everything you can see, everything, every animal, it all is called to praise God. And then there's something interesting here, and he goes to the next logical thing, but I want you to notice the order, okay, starting in verse 11, it says this, kings of the earth and all people praise the Lord, 
princes and all judges of the earth, praise the Lord. Both young men and maidens, praise the Lord. And old men and children, praise the Lord. It's interesting that the list, people obviously are on the list, but he goes in descending order from the most powerful to the weakest. Kings of the earth were the most powerful people. Princes and judges would have been like lieutenants, would have been under the kings, so he's moving down in power and authority. And he says, young men and maidens, those would be the strongest type of people, old men and children being the weakest of all humans. And then he says this, and and I think this is why he does this. He says this in verse 13, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and heaven, and he has exalted the horn of his people, the praise of all his saints, of the children of Israel, a people near to him. Verse 13 and 14 are two reasons why All of creation from my head down should praise God. And the first and foremost reason he gives is you just need to praise the name of the Lord because he alone deserves every bit of praise you could give. And if you don't see that yet in your life or you don't understand that or that doesn't make sense to you, then I challenge you to spend some time considering the nature and character of God Because the further you study who God is from his word and from his creation and from his community, you can't help but come to the conclusion, I think, that God's name alone should be exalted above everything else. That's the first reason. How do you follow that up? Well, then in verse 14, he follows it up with the Christmas message. He follows it up with the Christmas passage. And I think he makes clear why he listed people in order of the most powerful to the least powerful. When he says this, he has exalted the horn of his people and the praise of all his saints. What he's talking about there is Jesus being born to come and to free the oppressed. We call Jesus the breaker of chains in ancient Israel, Israelite imagery, the horn is a symbol of victory, especially a horn that is raised. So think of a bull's horn. And when a bull fights, when it's done, it raises its head and its horns are raised <clears throat> in victory. Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, she sings a song when she is, becomes pregnant, and in that song she uses this exact same imagery that the Lord has given, has raised the horn of victory for his people. Psalm 132 talks about the horn of victory and elsewhere within the community of Israel, God's people, when you hear a phrase about an exalted horn, you need to know that what is being talked about is that God frees the oppressed, that God breaks the chain of the slave. And so when he says in verse 11 and verse 12, when he's talking about the kings of the earth and the princes and then the young men and the old men, the young women and the old women and the children, what he's saying is 
I think we can make this connection that even though Christ was born with no fanfare, the Messiah was born with no fanfare in a barn, that that was the greatest moment in the history of humanity. A tiny little baby born in a barn next to dirty animals and just shepherds, the, the last people that you would invite to celebrate the birth of the king. Shepherds are there. And God, used, and God said, this, will, this baby will break the chains of sin around people's hearts and make them sons and daughters of the Most High. I think Psalm 148 is a Christmas passage because the exalted horn is Jesus Christ being born, growing up, living, dying, and rising again. He is the exalted horn that entire time. Not just at the cross, not just at the resurrection. That's where it's fulfilled finally. But even before that, when he's born in a manger, he is the exalted horn. And I think, I don't know, but I hope, it seems like those shepherds moved by the Holy Spirit knew that that was true. Because after all, after they went and saw the baby and they saw that there was really not much going on, (laughs) they still went out and they went and told everybody they could find, he's here. The exalted horn of the people of God is here. So, Psalm 149, and this originally was going to be what this was all about, but Psalm 148 was too good, too good to pass up. But Psalm 149 is the natural response to the truth, to the mercy, the grace, the love, the justice, the freedom of the exalted horn of Jesus. Psalm 149, the title says, Praise to God for his salvation and his judgment. And so what I hope that when, when we're done here and, and we just look at Psalm 149 just a little bit, I hope that you will simply be able to thank God for what he did in Jesus. The title of the message is a Christmas Thanksgiving. That's all I want us to take away this morning is just a renewed thankfulness and a strengthened thankfulness, and a thankfulness that doesn't end with the Christmas season, but continues on to Easter, and continues on to the next Christmas, and continues on every single day, you can remember to praise the Lord for exalting the horn of his people and freeing the oppressed. That's what I hope you take away from Psalm 148 and Psalm 149. Here's what it says. Praise the Lord. Everyone who hears this needs to praise Yahweh. Here's why. You need to sing to the Lord a new song. 
and his praise in the assembly of saints. When we gather every week to praise the Lord, to sing his songs, to hear from his word, to make much of his greatness, of his holiness, it needs to be because we understand what it means for the horn to have been exalted, for Christ to have come. So do these things, in verse 2, let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of God be glad and take heart in the very nature of their creator God. Let the children of Zion, which would also be, again, the, the people of Israel, the people of God, be joyful in their king. Let them take hope and take heart in the fact that the God who created them doesn't stand back and say, good luck, I hope everything works out for you. Doesn't stand back and say, well, you made your choice and and I'm done with you and, and, and you had your chance, but actually comes down to rule his world and rule his people well. In verse three, let them praise them would be Israel, the children of Zion, the people of God. Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and the harp. If you never feel the joy and elation of knowing that your oppression has been taken care of, has been freed, has been, your, has been broken, your chains have been broken because of a baby being born in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago, If you've never felt that elation, you need to consider deeper, more closely, and longer what it means for God to send his son, what it means for Jesus to come to this earth and be born in a barn. It should cause us joy. It should cause us happiness, delight. Even in this world that we live in, even in this culture we live in, even in this place we live in where things always seem like they're getting either worse or just bad enough that that it seems like God has forgotten us or that he's looking elsewhere or how on earth could this be the plan? We're bombarded by those feelings all the time and God says at your very core, you can dance and you can praise and you can rejoice. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. Here's why. If, if you didn't remember from Psalm 48, here's why you can do this. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He loves to be with you. He loves to be with us. It makes him happy. And then this, and this is also a Christmas passage. He will beautify the humble with salvation. He will make the humble beautiful by saving them. I mean, it, there's so much going on here. Again, this could be a whole nother sermon. The people of Israel were oftentimes in a position of humility. They were hardly ever the strongest nation out there, the strongest kingdom out there, the strongest people out there. Oftentimes, they were the lowest. They were an afterthought. They were the ones who were easily conquered. And how many times in the history of Israel did God come to the humble people and say, I will fight for you. I will save you. And Israel is the nation, the people of God are the ones we're still talking about all this time later. 
because of God's power in his salvation. He takes things that are ugly. He takes things that are broken by sin, things that aren't beautiful. And when he gives that Christ, then they are turned into something glorious. He says this, let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth. And then this is where we move to what this means for your life and my life. And anybody who claims the name of Christ, this is what it means for us going forward. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth. The high praises of God would be truth about him. That's what we sing. We, when we sing, when we read, when we pray, we're singing, reading, and praying truth about God. And that's what we need to be doing. And the truth of God, the words of God, the high praises of God are to be a two-edged sword in the hand of his people. You might remember from Ephesians that Paul says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And the word of God is the only offensive weapon given to the soldier of Christ. Everything else is defensive. And the truth of God is the only thing that can go and can change people's hearts, that can go and can change people's minds. The truth of God. And I think that's at play here. And I think this is what we're supposed to take away from this. After we spend time praising God for what he's done in sending Christ, then we need to start living out the truth of God, the word of God. And it has the power to change people's lives. Two-edged sword in their hand, to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. What I want to say real quick is I don't think this means that we're supposed to go out and pick fights with people. I mean, it kind of feels like that, right? I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think what he's saying here, and I think this goes back to Psalm 148, in verse 11 and 12, and verse 14, when he reminds us that our world is built on power structures, hierarchies, those with the most power have all the say, and whatever they say goes. And God was pleased to come and send a baby to be the exalted horn. And he was, come, he was pleased to send a baby to a place that no one had heard about from Bethlehem, from Nazareth, places that were derided, places that had no power, places that had no standing, places that were not important in the world's eyes. And he said, this is where I will do my work of freeing the oppressed. This is where I will break the chains. And Jesus went, and who did he hang out with? It wasn't the religious elite. It wasn't the most powerful voices of God. It was with the sinners, it was with the criminals, it was with the people that had no standing. That's where he went. And so I think that the point of 7, 8, and 9 of, verse, of Psalm 149 is this, that you and I have no power to accomplish anything 
apart from the truth and the word and the love and the mercy and the justice and the righteousness of Christ. And so I think what we're called here to do is what he was called to do and what he did. Jesus didn't go pick fights, but he was never very far from conflict, was he? Because all he did was say the truth. And those who were lost in the darkness and who hated the light, they were the ones who came and said, okay, I'm going to handle this. I'm going to make this go away. I'm going to fix this problem. And it looked like they got real close. But God said, this is always always how it was going to be. The truth was always going to sting in the dark. But then the third day comes and Jesus rises again and he says, your chains are broken. You don't have to live in the darkness anymore. You don't have to hide in the darkness anymore. Come to the light and I'll beautify you with salvation. I'll make you a creature of light, a creature of honor, a vessel of victory instead of one of wrath. And that's what Jesus did. That's what he said. He didn't go around. He didn't, his message, the truth of God, that's all I can say. The, The truth of God is what executed vengeance on the nations and what brought punishment on the peoples and bound the kings and the nobles. And so... Psalm 149 ends with this. This honor have all his saints. You and I have the same call and it's an honorable it's an honorable mission to live like Jesus in our world. So, praise God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you I thank you for exalting the horn of victory. I thank you for sending Christ, for sending your son Jesus to be born in a way that makes no sense to the world, to humanity, to the way we think things should be. But Father, you did something better than we could ever imagine. So Father, I pray that even though we're starting to move out of the Christmas season and away from celebration of Christmas that we would never forget to continually celebrate and give thanks for the fact that Jesus was born as a baby. He lived his life as a human. He died on the cross and he rose again to break our chains, to be the victory that we need, to live the life we never could. Father, I pray that we would spend all of our time considering what that means and learning how to thank you for it, how to be grateful for it every day. And Father, I also pray that we would show that love, show that victory, show that freedom, share it in what we think, say, and do with everyone around us. Show us as the body of Christ how to love like Jesus did, how to share the message of freedom from the oppression of sin and to give hope and to be a people who rejoice in knowing you. We thank you. We love you. We ask you to keep us safe as we go in your name. Amen.